Hello, friends. Welcome to the dimension of our midnight cake. I'm Soltis. Joining me in the nexus between realities are my friends and fellow transdimensional beings, Lumberdor and Beaches. Unfortunately, Doug will not be joining us for this transmission as he is occupied with the monsters of his own dimension. Ugh. We've all been there. We wish him well. The transmission for this week will focus on El Labyrintho del Famo, known in English as Pan's Labyrinth the 2006 Spanish-Mexican dark fantasy film written, directed, and co-produced by Guillermo del Toro. The film stars Ivana Vaquero, Sergi Lopez, Maribel Verdú, Doug Jones, Ariad Languil, and Alex Angulo. The story takes place in Spain during the summer of 1944, five years after the Spanish Civil War, during the early Francoist period. The narrative intertwines this real world with a mythical world centered on an overgrown abandoned labyrinth and a mysterious fawn creature with whom the main character Ophelia interacts. Ophelia's stepfather, the phalangist Captain Vidal, hunts the Spanish Maquis who fight against the Francoist regime in the region while Ophelia's pregnant mother, Carmen, grows increasingly ill. Ophelia meets several strange and magical creatures who become central to her story, leading her through the trials of the old labyrinth garden. The film does a masterful job of makeup, animatronics, and CGI effects to bring life to the creatures. The original Spanish title refers to the fawns of Roman mythology, while the English, German, and French titles refer specifically to the fawn-like Greek deity Pan. However, Del Toro has stated that the fawn in the film is not Pan. The movie premiered on the 27th of May, 2006 at the Cannes Film Festival. Pan's Labyrinth opened to widespread critical acclaim, with many praising the visual effects, direction, cinematography, and performances. It grossed over $83 million at the worldwide box office against a $19 million budget and won numerous international awards, including three Academy Awards, three BAFTA Awards, including Best Film Not in the English Language, the Ariel Award for Best Picture, the Saturn Awards for Best International Film, and Best Performance by a Young Actor for Ivana Vaquero, and the 2007 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, Long Form. Later on in 2019, a novelization by Del Toro and Cornelia Funke was published. For me, this film is a masterclass in weaving the fantastical with the mundane to create something truly unique. Any discussion about Pan's Labyrinth would be incomplete without touching on Guillermo del Toro himself. Guillermo del Toro is a Mexican film director, producer, screenwriter, and author, probably best known for his Academy Award-winning fantasy films Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, winning the Oscars for Best Director and Best Picture for the latter. Throughout his career, del Toro has shifted between personal lower-budget Spanish-language films such as Kronos and The Devil's Backbone, and Hollywood tentpoles including Mimic, Blade II, Hellboy, and its sequel Hellboy II, The Golden Army, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, and Nightmare Alley. As a producer or writer, he's worked on the films The Orphanage, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, The Hobbit film series, Mama, The Book of Life, Pacific Rim Uprising, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and The Witches. With Chuck Hogan, he co-authored the Strain trilogy of novels and later adapted into a comic book series and a live-action television series. 
With DreamWorks Animation, he created the Netflix animated series Troll Hunters, Three Below, and Wizards, the three installments of the Tales of Arcadia trilogy, based on the 2015 novel he co-wrote with Daniel Krauss. Also with DreamWorks, he executive produced Puss in Boots, Kung Fu Panda, Rise of the Guardians, and Kung Fu Panda 3. Del Toro's work has been characterized by a strong connection to fairy tales and horror, with an effort to infuse visual or poetic beauty into the grotesque. When Del Toro was about eight years old, he began experimenting with his father's Super 8 camera, making short films with Planet of the Apes toys and other objects. One short film focused on a quote-unquote serial killer potato with ambitions of world domination. It murdered Del Toro's mother and brothers before stepping outside and being crushed by a car. One of the things that I found interesting about him is that Guillermo del Toro studied special effects and makeup with special effects artist Dick Smith. He spent 10 years as a special effects makeup designer and formed his own company, Necropia. He also co-founded the Guadalajara International Film Festival, and later in his directing career, he formed his own production company, The Tequila Gang. I'm very excited to begin the discussion. If you happen to enjoy our conversations and would like to contribute or get in contact with us, Consider visiting our website at ourmidnightcake.com and share this transmission with your friends. And join us next week as we discuss Modern Times, the 1936 American silent comedy film written and directed by Charlie Chaplin, available to stream on HBO Max. I do know like some of the, I think probably the first thing I saw of his might have been Hellboy. I may be wrong about that, but I know Hellboy just stuck with me because it was, it was so different. His, than his, first, his first what? First movie i guess no 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 he he had done a bit before that no i know he had i think i i think hellboy is the first thing i realized that it was oh, something okay. he had done is what i was saying just because it was so different than any other superhero movie and it had got me in, it got me into the hellboy comics pretty good as well and some of the books the character wink in that movie i think is wink whatever the big blue guy is with the giant Fist of we, we was the big troll in the yeah. second film. Was it the second film? Okay, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, I just I loved that character and how it was designed and how it just towered over everybody. It was just just amazing. Oh yeah, he's um whoever is that Weta? Is that he's working with? I think so. That was some of the best like uh, costume animatronic stuff since the Jim Henson's worked on the Turtle movies. Yeah, probably better in some regards, but. <laughs> Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, maybe number three. <laughs> both of his posters, he still, I think, had reached out to Drew Struzan. So he, both of his uh, movie posters for Hellboy really stood out because they were done by this premier poster artist of mm. multiple last decades. And those movies just really stuck with me for him. And then, you know, after that, I really branched out and went back and watched a lot of stuff that I'd missed or if I saw him attached to anything, I'd make sure and at least watch it, even if I didn't know what it was about or really interested in the story initially, just to see what he would do. Cause he was so good at creating these environments and creating all these like practical effects. And then as technology improved blending the two, cause I think it was Crimson Peak. Like it, to me, it wasn't, I didn't enjoy it as much as some of his others, but the blend of some of the, like the ghost stuff in it and the um, like Gothic design I loved, even if the story didn't like resonate as much with me. See, I, I liked the story and it wasn't as much about the ghost stuff for me. Which that's surprising because you like all the ghost stuff. Well, I mean, that wasn't really a ghost story. It had a cool ghost, though. 
It did have ghosts in it. No busters though. No uh you know. I, I think that's that, that's where so that I don't know what the story is about or anything. That that's uh Crimson Pink. That's it was where a love it, story. It, really. That's where it went wrong was because the studio sold it as a haunted yeah. house movie and it was not. Oh, I hate when that happens. Mm. Yeah, that that that's what it was. Oh, I guess because it it was more of a love story, right? It I was remember. it was a gothic romance, uh, gothic romance uh, maybe yeah. a, or a gothic fairy tale, you might say. Yeah, and uh, you know there are ghosts in them but but they're not supposed to be like haunted house stories yeah and they that's what the uh, studio totally sold it they're none of your your classic jump scares in there so i think a lot of people were disappointed well i'm sure i would have been if i saw it (laughs) and it was advertised that way probably the thing that he's known most for would be pan's labyrinth i would think yeah, that's why I, I believe uh, the Shape of Water is where they gave him an Academy Award and said we should have given it to you for this yeah. one. So here yeah. you go. <laughs> yes, I did. I I love Shape of Water, and I know some of y'all don't because of the Aquaman. Um, it's it's an lady movie. romance stuff, but <laughs> that what you know. I think of it as Hellboy. Tub. Hellboy one point five. Yeah. <laughs> Abe's adventures with the lady. This is like what Abe was doing before he met Hellboy. <laughs> was he oh, same okay. act, same actor even? Yes. This is such a strange we movie. We almost have to mention uh, Guillermo's uh, Johnny Depp, uh, Doug, uh, Doug Jones. It, oh, it is a close. Doug Jones is fantastic. Well, it's either Doug Jones or Ron Perlman. <laughs> uh, Hitchcock was a seems to have been a large influence on him. Although I don't know of any filmmaker who has not been influenced to some degree by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, but I don't, if you've seen any of the photos of Del Toro's house, like you can see the influence like heavily. He's this huge collector of like movie prop stuff. And like, I don't think most people could make it through his living room um, <laughs> with some of the stuff that he's got in there. It's a bit of a monster museum. It is. It looks like a monster museum. <laughs> That's kind of cool to have a curated collection like that that you can live with. So, so I, I know, um, Lumberdor, you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, and I think uh, Saltis, you watched that specifically for this discussion. So, we want to we want to hit on that a little bit. Sure. More than anything, it seems to be a parable, heavily and isn't it considered by to be fairy tales, a, a sort of a, at least a spiritual successor to one of his previous films. Um, the Devil's Backbone, which I think took place during the Spanish War. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's all filmed in Spanish, which is something mm. that I really enjoyed. I know that was a concern with the producers um, that they, I believe they told, they tried to convince him to do it in English, that it would not be as marketable. I mean, I don't personally think it took away from the movie at all. I loved it. Now that I know the story through and through, I don't mind watching it with the subtitles, I think the first time through, I would have liked to have watched it with maybe maybe a dubbed version. Generally, outside of anime or any other cartoon or something like that, I don't much care for dubs, especially because with live well, did movies. you know that uh, Guillermo was so concerned about the translation that he wrote the subtitles himself? I didn't know that. That's kind of awesome. The the English subtitles. Oh. Yeah, that's right. Because at the it was at Sundance, I think the the version that 
that they had the the subtitles, the translation for that. If I remember correctly, he hated that. Mm. And so he spent another six months or so making sure that everything was translated according to how it should be uh, before it was released in theaters. And I kind of wish that, I wonder if how much that happens in other movies, <laughs> you know? Probably never. He'd have to be bl- bilingual, first of all. <laughs> yeah. But the story for Pan's Labyrinth, I found very interesting. The captain of the fascist army, there are things that he could delegate to other people, but he chooses to do himself, like shining his boots or you know, things that he will take care of himself personally because it's what a good soldier does. And throughout the movie, he's he's portrayed as being a good soldier. He follows orders. He's meticulous. He's well-groomed. He's ruthless and shows very little care for anybody else outside of himself. He's a terrible person. <laughs> he's absolutely yes. ruthless. Like, like when those two hunters are caught and they're, they're trying to explain that they were just out hunting rabbits. And as he's talking with them, I'm sorry, uh, my brain just went into Elmer Fudd mode. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a father and son pair. And the son tells the captain, like, respectfully, if my father says he was hunting rabbits, then he was hunting rabbits. And then that's when the captain takes a bottle and smashes the son's face in. And then he shoots the father and he shoots the son. And then he continues going through the bag. And then he finds the rabbit that they were hunting. And instead of being remorseful or expressing some sort of emotion about having just committed a double homicide and murdered these two people. He's annoyed at his subordinates who drew this to his attention without properly searching them first. Mm. It's an interesting character moment. Do you think he would have let them go if he had found the, uh, the rabbits first? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I think so. Because it was almost else... like he found the rabbits himself, case closed. And mm-hmm. you're right. He ends up blaming it on his soldiers and, and not so much for, you know, the deaths, but just for bothering him with the matter. It was almost like a lesson for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do remember how terrible his character was. Not him in playing it, but that character itself. He, he oh, yeah, the, the actor is fantastic at, at the character. Um, <laughs> I remember it being difficult for me to watch the first time through because, I mean, typically I think just when I'm reading subtitles, you know, I'll be reading it and following along, but I'm, I'm losing a little bit of the story just because I'm reading as I go along. But I remember uh, this movie really like being hard. It took me, I think, two watches to watch the full thing through because I would get so lost in their acting with how they were portraying the characters that I would forget to read the subtitles. I I agree. When I saw this first in the theater, there were many times where I was like, oh, I I forgot to read. (laughs) Yeah. Because there was this, I mean, all his, he knows how to, one, make all these characters and these environments, but then he knows how to pull the right emotions too, on top of the language. I I read something about this, this actor who played the captain. He, uh, apparently the producers working with Guillermo um, did not agree with his casting because I guess in his, um, I can't remember whatever his nationality is, he was considered more of a comedic actor and they were, they were telling Guillermo this and telling him that he didn't understand because he was Mexican. And Guillermo (laughs) basically, basically told them he didn't care. (laughs) Cast him anyway. Well, I thought that he was very well cast. I would not have guessed him uh, with a comedic background at all. No, uh-uh. no, I'm, I'm not familiar with the actor. He was frightening. Yeah, yeah, that's what he, he was. He was he did a fantastic job. And Ophelia is 
supposed to be the reincarnation of a princess who lost her way. She was in the, the kingdom of the underworld. Then she meets the fawn and he's re he recruits her to complete three tasks that will prove that her spirit has not been corrupted by the human world and she'll be able to return. And then you get into some really, really cool makeup effects and animatronics. <laughs> There's a giant toad that lives in this uh, lives underneath this tree and is taking the nourishment from the tree and and she has to retrieve a key from inside of it. And then there's the pale man, which I think is, is oh, yeah. one of the more grotesque creatures. <laughs> I can't, I, I, for the longest time, I couldn't think about putting my hands up in front of my face without thinking about the pale man. Also eats children. Oh, yes. yes. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 if you can get past, if you can get past the hands with the eyeballs, he does eat children. <laughs> yeah, there in, in his lair, there are these murals. Uh, painted all around of him eating children and there's a huge pile of children's shoes in the corner. So basically the fawn, she meets the fawn and the fawn tells her that she's, uh, he believes her to be the uh, reincarnation of this princess and to reclaim her, uh, her rightful place in the king, the underworld kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, she has underworld. to complete these three tasks. The first task being the one you mentioned with the frog where she has to feed him these three, um, seeds i think they were mm -hmm. and uh retrieve a key from his belly and after doing which, so he kind of turns inside out almost and deflates yeah. and <laughs> she gets this done with with little with, with little trouble the big problem here is she ends up ruining her uh her dress yes because it was the night of a yeah. big community dinner that the captain was hosting for high-ranking members of the community and she was supposed to be there and be mm. which i think was more of a problem with her mother than with him. I don't think he minded her not being there. Right. <laughs> but an important point here is that she sent to bed without supper. Mm -hmm. And it's not like these people are eating that much anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like the note that even though, you know, he was having this bit dinner party, the servants were like, where are we going to get this from? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did she said? We needed another chicken and uh, something. And the other one's like, well, where are we supposed to get it? Yeah. And then the second task being to retrieve a treasure from the pale man, uh, which turns out to be a dagger, a ceremonial dagger. I want to give the, the human part of the story is really, it ends up being the better part of the movie. And like we said, the captain is terrible, but this scene is straight out of the best, some of the best horror I've ever seen. <laughs> oh yeah. This, this creature sure. is terrible. And again, portrayed by who? Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Yep. <laughs> Once hey, again, the pale man and the fawn. One thing about the fawn. Tall man extraordinaire. Yeah. Um, yeah. That made, that I was looking up some of the practical effects stuff with that, that was kind of unique is, um, you know, pretty much any other movie, this, that character probably would have been CGI or any of them really. Oh, that's what we love about Guillermo. <laughs> I know. Oh yeah. But practical they effects. only, they only um, green screen his knees to his feet. Everything else was prosthetics. Like he was sitting in, in like these raised platform shoe things. Yeah, it was like, like four hours of makeup you had to go I was, through. I, I was thinking all this setup came from uh, uh, Guillermo spending just who knows how much time trying to figure out how to uh, put Hellboy on hoops. <laughs> I was going to say, like, this was this was pre-Hellboy. And, yeah, I bet he used every trick that he used for this movie to get prepared for Hellboy after going. You know, there's a, there's a, a creepy. This was delete. after Hellboy. 
Was yes, it? Yes, yes. This movie yeah. was just after Hellboy. Hell- Hellboy was 2004, Pan's Labyrinth was 2006, and then Hellboy okay. 2 was 2008. And of course, okay. um, I'm you know, sure there was um, cross pollination with yeah. what was going on. <laughs> he, he had uh, he had gone a lot of sign from Doug Jones, probably Hell, Hellboy and Boots <laughs> for the uh, the movie, which is fine. I think I, I I didn't have any problem with that adaptation. There's a there's a an extremely creepy deleted scene from the 2019 Hellboy movie where they do show Hellboy's who's during a shower scene. <laughs> it's just not. It's not right. <laughs> the uh, baby Hellboy creeped me out a little bit. Out of all the <laughs> scary things in the Hellboy movies, you know, the tooth fairy creatures and everything else, the it was the baby Hellboy that creeped me more than anything. <laughs> anyway, anyway, back, where, Sorry, where were we? Back to Pan. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pale man and the fawn. The second task. And she has some very specific task, rules collect to more underpants. Yes, actually, one very specific Profit. rule. <laughs> yeah, specifically, do not eat anything at the feast because there's this huge table. Like, think Vladimir Putin style, long table, mm-hmm. is full of food, and she is told time and time again, do not eat anything at this table. And the little fairies are trying to to get in her yeah, way and say, no, 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 don't. And people don't understand this moment because, of course, we live in an age where McDonald's is cheap and on every corner. Even on the White House table, you know? <laughs> these people, even though she was living with the captain, these people were having to ration out food and something like a grape would have been like a delicacy, I think. I would think so. This would have been like your favorite candy laid out before you. And she's what's... Ten? How many ten-year-olds follow all the rules? <laughs> oh, always. That's why I'm here on timing. <laughs> no, they, they don't listen at all. I, I like to think of this too as like there's <laughs> there's a strong theme of like um, people just choosing to um, go against the rules for potentially good reasons. You know, the doctor who was helping people, even though it knew he knew the consequences. The maid who was helping her brother and his soldiers. And uh, this was just that, you know, this was to show there's a difference. Maybe not following the rules because of grapes is a, is just, it's a dumb thing. (laughs) (laughs) Might not be as noble as trying to save a life or (laughs) or something like that. Yeah. And then as soon as she eats the grapes, that's when the creature uh, is activated, I guess. Yeah. Oh my God. Just the creepy the... little hand motions and yeah, like... placing an eyeball in each hand. It, yeah. is uh, When she comes in, she sees the whole feast. And then at the end of the table is sitting this grotesque creature with saggy, pale skin, no eyes, and these really long clawed hands just on top of the table, motionless. And she even goes so far as to pick up the plate that's in front of him with the eyeballs on it and be disgusted by it and put it back. (laughs) 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 But, and while she's enjoying the grapes, he's, I don't know. And these fairies uh, are trying to stop her. undulating and he's putting the eyeballs into the palms of his hands and, (laughs) <laughs> super creepy. And if you wonder super, how dangerous he could get then he he takes a bite out of a fairy 
Yes. Oh, yeah. He he eats two of the fairy. He catches two mm. of the fairies and, and eats them while they're still alive. And you hear their screams and you see them being torn apart. <laughs> and she decides, oh, yeah, better run. Oh, we skipped the part where um, she delays in doing the second task because her mother she does. has gotten yeah. quite ill. And when the fawn comes to see her and asks why she hasn't uh, finished the task yet, he gives her something. He gives her uh, it's a, a mandrake. Yeah. Gives her a mandrake to put in a bowl of fresh milk with a few drops of her blood. And Two drops of will... blood each day. Mm-hmm. It'll help and the it mother appears with to work. Her... Mm-hmm. It seems to be this miracle cure. The doctor doesn't understand it, but he's glad that she's that the mother is doing better. Mm. Uh, and then when she sees the fawn again and she confesses that that she had an accident, she says. He, he tells her that she's what, lost her immortality or something, that she's become a human. Mm-hmm. That she, she'll never be able to return to the kingdom and that, that all of the magic will die with her. Which sucks for them. Yeah. <laughs> and she'll never see them again. <laughs> yeah. I think they, they do a good, really good job of making this fawn seem increasingly more menacing, I, I felt mm-hmm. like. So that oh, yeah. you, yes. you were never really sure whether to trust him or not. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I remember that and watching and just being unsure of where it was going the entire so time. I could not help but think, is he, is he tricking her? And uh, right up until the end, you think maybe he, he is like, there's a turn at the end where you think, Oh, see, he, he has tricked her. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, yeah. it involves the third task. That's another thing is like, you were talking about, like, I guess the, the, all these like science fiction characters, not just science fiction, but you know, fairy tale characters versus the human characters. And it's these like powerful scenes with the human characters that really stand out and all the craziness that's going on in everything else. It's just this is another one like um Crimson Peak, yeah, where the mm-hmm. the human story is is it turns out to be so much more powerful. Yeah, I think it really does. Or you see more of the ruthlessness of the captain his own men are getting shot and he's very calm throughout the whole thing again portrayed as a model soldier where this kind of thing doesn't bother him i mean he's out there in the field with them you know don't be afraid (laughs) and capture one of the rebels bring him back and he seems to genuinely enjoy torturing this person who has a stutter The, the stutter from the the gorillas yeah I mean, it's not just torture. He explains to him that, you know, um, I won't be able to trust you at first. So we're going to have to go through some of these things. And yep. It lays out the the whole plan. By the time we get to this, we'll we'll be almost like brothers. I'll believe anything you say. (laughs) Wow. And he gives him the opportunity to escape. You know, he tells his um, his uh, one of his soldiers, you know, if, if I tell him he can leave, no one will stop him. Right. Mm-hmm. The test is uh, if he can count to three without stuttering, which is just horrible. That absolute look of defeat on the on the rebel's face mm-hmm. when he can't get to three. Then they go into the torture. Yeah, no one came to this movie expecting to care about what happened to the maid. Right. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mercedes. She has a wonderful part in yes. this story. Hey, speaking of Mercedes, all right. Um, do, do you want to know how he got these scars? <laughs> wow. Right? 
<laughs> oh man, that was rough. He's been helping sneak out food and uh, letters and medicines and things like that with the doctor's help. And the doctor has been helping treat the wounded there as well. And she is discovered as being part of this. She uh, Mercedes decides to take Ophelia away after Ophelia pleads with with her to take her. And then they're captured. Ophelia is taken, you know, locked up in her room, no escape. And Mercedes is taken to the storeroom where she'll be tortured in the same way as her stuttering friend. Little did the captain know that she had a knife on her and was able to cut her restraints and then stabbed him, stabbed him in the back, stabbed him in the chest. And then while he was on his knees, <laughs> put the knife in his mouth. This is the scene where the captain learns a, not, to, not to monologue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me monologuing again. <laughs> like every good villain should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I love that they, they had this thing where she had this kitchen knife. She kept, she wasn't so much hiding, is that's just where she kept it. Mm-hmm. But again, this, this has been a theme that, that he underestimates women. And she says that that's how she's able, how she was able to get away with all this for so long is because he constantly underestimated her and ignored her. And, and then (laughs) he gets stabbed. He gets sliced open. My gosh. So while all that is, while she's busy, you know, cutting up the captain and then escaping, Ophelia is in her room and the fawn comes back and says that he's going to give her one last chance, but she needs to get her brother. And she wants to know why. And he's like, no, 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 no questions. Just get your brother. <laughs> we need him for this last part. <laughs> and so she, she draws another magical chalk door and escapes. And, and while she's taking him to the labyrinth, the captain finds her as she's on her way out. She decided to drug one of, the, one of his drinks. So he's very woozy, but he's still in pursuit. Oh, when he drinks and it comes through... The, oh yeah, uh, through oh, to the slices, yeah. mouth, and he's just like, <laughs> oh, everybody felt something that. Something else. He he sews up his own mouth. Like uh-huh. he doesn't he doesn't let the paramedic do it. He he's got to do it himself because he's a good soldier. He's chases her through the labyrinth. There's some magic that goes on where the labyrinth actually opens up, and she's able to run straight to the center and then closes up so that the captain has to, you know, keep going around the long way. And the fawn is at the center, and he tells her that the last task requires sacrifice and it requires the blood of, of an innocent. He passes it off as, oh, it's just a you know a couple drops of blood, but just you know, prick on the finger, that's it. But she doesn't want any harm to come to her brother. And she makes that her final decision that no, she's if it requires harming her brother, then she's not going to do it. At that moment, the captain walks in, finds her in the center finds of the her talking to no one. Finds her talking to no one, right? After taking back his son, shoots Ophelia. And she collapses. He walks out of the labyrinth, and that's when he's surrounded by all of the guerrilla soldiers. They've overrun the barracks. They've taken back the town, and they're waiting for him. Uh, he hands his son over to Mercedes. He's trying to give her some instructions, like tell my son, you know, about this, or tell my son that that his father. And she says flat out, no, he's not even going to know your name. And then he gets shot in the head, <laughs> and he's dead. <laughs> They run into the labyrinth. They find Ophelia dying. And then she's humming the lullaby that she knows while Ophelia passes into the kingdom of the underworld. She decided to 
sacrifice herself or spill her own blood in place of another, proving that her soul has remained pure and she gets to live with her family again. And the final task is figuring out how to get up on that 20 foot chair. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I didn't see any stairs or a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> One Doug Jones, please. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, the big question for most people coming out of this film is uh, the fairy tale parts. Were they real? I think they were. I believe Guillermo himself has said that he wanted it to feel open-ended, but that his personal preference is to believe that the fairy tale parts were real. One thing I thought of um, more than just whether or not the, the fairy tale part was real. Alternatively, you've got the captain who, you know, we, we heard this tale. I don't think we've even mentioned this yet of his father smashing his watch when he died on the battlefield so that his son would know the exact time he died. Mm -hmm. And he denies this story, but clearly he, he pays special attention to this cracked watch throughout yes. the movie. And time is a big important. He's constantly thinking about time, be it schedules or efficiency. Um, time mm -hmm. is a big deal to him. And legacy, you know, when it comes down to it, all he has is, is, is this son that he's figured out, you know, I mean, he doesn't even care about the family. He hates this son. It's this legacy, you know, this, this, yeah. The blood son legacy. Will, have, will have his name and his mm -hmm. father's name before him. And, and of course, then he dies being told that his son will, won't even know who he is. I mean, to, to me, that's like the difference between a sort of like a, a heaven and uh, nothing, you know, just, yeah. just nothingness. It's a very interesting movie. And I, I would recommend it to anybody. I, I do have to, I have to highly recommend if you enjoy this to watch the uh, Devil's Backbone. It's, I haven't, um, but I really want to now. It's similar. I mean, there's scenes that I wish, <laughs> I found myself watching this movie like late at night by myself and I wished I had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, coming from you, that's saying something. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for joining us in the dimension of our Midnight Cape. We hope you'll visit us again. From myself, Lumberdor, Beaches, and Doug, thank you, and good night. I did think some of the creepiest stuff in the pale man scene was like the, the crackling of his hands. And yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. He uses a, a lot of what would normally be subtle sounds, but, uh, but emphasizes them and uses them to punctuate emotions in various scenes very well. I thought, I wonder if part of that is from him writing as well. Um, kind of knowing when to really, I don't know, put the, I guess put the emphasis on those things more so than than some other directors that maybe just are used to the cinematography and not the writing as much. That may be true. I don't think that there are very many very many writer directors. Yeah. Where where you have directors who write their own like, like we were talking about this with Wes Anderson, where mm -hmm. how he he will 
lay everything out. He knows exactly what's going on before filming so that when it comes time to film, it's all figured out. And, you know, there's, there's still, you know, adjustments to be made, but it's basically, this is what's going to happen with Marvel movies or, or with the star Wars movies, they go through three, four different directors before they finally get somebody. And, and, you know, they they have entire scenes worked out before they even hire a director. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like we we we've taken care of all the action stuff. Don't worry about that. It's like you just got. I've never directed big budget action before. Oh, and you won't. <laughs> yeah, you you still haven't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 